Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. This is the 11th or the 12th recording, I think, whatever we're at, 12 part 12 of our series on catechesis, the Lutheran instruction, introduction to Lutheranism. Uh, we continue to talk about what Lutherans believe, what it means to be a Lutheran. And so, and we're going traveling through this in the order, in the structure of Luther's small catechism. Luther's small catechism has six chief parts. And so we are now on the third chief part, which is the Lord's Prayer. And so here, there you go. Very <laughs> fun thing about recording this live is I just dropped that. I'm going to grab a hold of this one. So, uh, uh, fun thing about recording this live is that you're going to see things like that. So, right here, we're going to continue through. We're going to go through in Luther's Catechism. There are seven um, petitions to the Lord's Prayer, including an introduction and a conclusion. And so, what I'm going to start with is I'm going to, so I'm going to read the Lord's Prayer. So it says, Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. The value of talking about the Lord's Prayer is it's a very good way to talk about prayer in and in and of itself. So that, those words I said, they're very familiar to many, 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 many people. And, uh, but the thing is, is that, uh, and notice that it still uses the old, the older English, the older languages, the old, older wording. Uh, most churches use this, and I think this is good practice. It is very nice that I could go to just about any place in the country. Amongst any group of English-speaking Christians, that they will know those words. There's something beautiful about that unity. When there's so much division amongst Christians, this is one of those things that's kind of neat that we have that unity. But to understand why the Lord's Prayer is so helpful for prayer, to understand prayer itself, it is valuable to look at where the Lord's Prayer gets introduced. So... This is taken out of Matthew chapter um, chapter 6, and it's beginning in verse 5. It says, and when you pray, so Jesus speaking, when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners that they may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. Now, understand here, people will read this and say, well, see, you. so you, got, you can't be praying in public. No public prayers. That's not what Jesus is dealing with. This is actually the big issue that, this is kind of an issue going on um, in this chapter. Because just a little bit before this, um, Jesus says at the beginning of the chapter, he says, Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. For then you will have no reward for your Father who is in heaven. 
And he will also talk about this with fasting. When you fast, do not look gloomy like the hypocrites. So in other words, the major thing is that people here, he's dealing with egos. He's telling people that when you pray, don't pray for show. It's not a, He's not speaking against public prayer. Public prayer, I mean, Jesus, you know, publicly prayed. Um, we see examples of that within the scriptures. Um, so, and, you know, synagogue worship, temple worship, these are things that Jesus didn't encourage, discourage, I mean. He did not discourage public worship. So it does not, doesn't say, would not make sense for him to discourage public prayer. The issue is not public prayer. The issue is the motivation. What's the heart behind it? They love to state. So it says, it says they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners. And here's the key that they may be seen by others. So that's what they're trying to do. They're trying to be exalted for what they do. He says, and when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as Gentiles do, for they think they will be heard for their many words. Now, again, this is not a speaking against long prayers. Remember, Jesus' high priestly prayer, when you look it up at the Gospel of John, it's a pretty lengthy prayer. It's longer than the long prayers that we have on Sunday morning, which is called the prayer of the church. But people will say, you know that prayer that you always do at the sermon, it's kind of, after the sermon, it's kind of long. Jesus says that, you know, says that you're not supposed to say long prayers or whatever. No, 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 no. If Jesus, understand, his, his prayer in John is a lot longer than that prayer, all right? The condemnation is, again, is not against long prayers. The condemnation is against meaningless words, just throwing words. I pray as thou was, you know, they, you pontificate with the most beautifulest languages as you could come up with this, you know, type thing. You know, that type of idea. Jesus is telling you, don't think you have to be super poetic. Just speak. Speak to him as your father, because he is your father. Right? So, and again, he's also, again, still concerned about that issue of um, ego and desiring to be seen and praised by others for the eloquence of their prayers. So it says, do not be like them, for your father knows what you need before you ask them. Ask him. So then he says, pray then like this. Our father in heaven, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done. On earth as it is in heaven, give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your father forgive your trespasses. So there you go. This is the context of the Lord. So you notice there, verse um, 9 to 13 is the origin of the Lord's Prayer. And Jesus says it in the context of teaching how to pray. So this is how he is modeling prayer. Not that you, the Lord's Prayer is good and beneficial to pray because it's modeling 
in molding your heart and mind to pray to your Lord. But that's not the only prayer that you can pray. You can pray any prayer you want. The key here is that you're not trying to show, get, do it for show. You're doing it out of faith, coming to your Heavenly Father as a child comes to um, his, his earthly father and asks for needs. So I'm going to begin here with the introduction to the Lord's Prayer. So I noticed, as I noted at the beginning, uh, the Lord's Prayer is broken into seven petitions plus an introduction and a conclusion. So the introduction, Our Father who art in heaven, what does this mean? With these words, God tenderly invites us to believe that he is our true Father and that we are his true children. So that with all boldness and confidence, we may ask him as dear children, ask their dear father. So there he's telling you right off the bat how to address our God, to address God, address him as father. And this is actually important to remember. When you come to God, you are praying to him as a child asks a parent. And... You know, there's, and here's here's a good point to deal with. So, how does God answer prayers? Now, I want to get get past something here. There is a false teaching that's gone around for years, for centuries, um, that is known as the power of prayer. They'll tell you that prayer has power, which, in a sense, it does, but not quite the way it's a lot of times taught. It has power in that it's the tool by which you communicate to God. But the problem a lot of times is it's used to say, the your prayers saved me. Your prayers healed me. And again, if you understand that, that it's actually ultimately God that's doing it, not really the prayer, the prayer was the means by which you communicated God, then you're right. But otherwise, this is completely um, the work of our uh, prayer is the work of God. And prayer is not with the power, is the power is in God. And so I'm going to use the, exa the example I always like to use as example um, of when I was in college is I would always ask, when I would ever, maybe I need some money or whatever. And I was, you know, financially really struggling at a moment. I'd call up my dad on my, on my cell phone and say, hey, dad, can you help me out here? And sometimes my dad said yes, sometimes my dad said no, sometimes my dad gave me more than I really needed. And by the way, that's actually very much how God answers your prayer. Sometimes he says yes, sometimes he says no, sometimes he says maybe or wait, and sometimes he says yes and here is more. But the other thing is, is that, but here's the thing, is the answer to the prayer, the answer to that request to my dad um, is not dependent upon the power of the granting of the, of the what I'm asking is not lying in the cell phone. The cell phone is mainly merely the tool by which to communicate. Just as prayer is merely the tool to communicate to your Heavenly Father. If you receive that the answer is no, it does not mean that there's something wrong with my cell phone. It does not mean I need to get a hold of with Verizon and say, hey, Verizon, um, I asked my dad for help here and he said no. I think something's wrong with my phone. No, there's nothing wrong with the phone. 
The power is not in the phone. The power is in the one to whom you're communicating. So the same thing when it comes to prayer. The power is ultimately in God. And see, what a lot of times happens is people come up with all these different ideas and methods and tools on how you're supposed to make your prayers answered. Um, there is a, there's a popular book and a movie that came out a few years ago. It's called The War Room. And, you know, they almost kind of taught it. It was, it was very much this, you had to come up with a method of prayer. The key is that you just pray. Yes, you're supposed to pray. But there's no method. And, here, and the thing is, this is the thing that bugs me. The, same, the person that made that movie and re, did the more recent movie, Overcomer, did the same thing twice in a row is that when she started getting her mind focused on God, all of a sudden everything goes well. You know, the the runner in the movie, she <laughs> she comes to faith and boom, all of a sudden she's a freshman and she's the best in the state at cross country. You know, I've which is pretty radical. Uh you know, all of a, if you come to and that's a, and by the way, that also suggests she's the only Christian that was running there. So all those others, if they had just gotten their life right with Christ, maybe they would have won. So there's that thing. And this is kind of, by the way, this is also kind of the theology of glory, the prosperity gospel. Some of that stuff I dealt with in the first article, the creed, this whole idea that you had the right kind of faith, you pray the right words. And so people say, well, maybe I didn't have enough faith when I prayed. That's why God didn't answer me. Give me, and he did say yes. Maybe it's because my words weren't good. Maybe maybe I need to have more people. So this is a common thing you'll hear. People say, where two or more are gathered, there I am amongst them. I'm going to quote, I'm going to read that verse for you. So this is, this is in the Gospel of Matthew, where this comes from. It's in chapter 18. Or not. Yeah, it is. Chapter 18, verse 20. It says, it says, For where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am among you. That's it. That's the verse that people say, Well, see, if you pray to God, he hears your prayers better. Or something like that. That's what's kind of implied here. The problem with it, there's a couple of problems with this. First off, textual. You, this is the number, okay, I'm going to tell you the three most important rules for biblical, biblical interpretation. Context, context, and context. Got that? You have to look at what's going on around this passage. So I'm going to read the full paragraph. Begins at verse 15. So chap, Matthew 18, verse 15, it says, If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault. Between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Truly I say to you, Whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Which, by the way, that's echoing what um, Jesus said to Peter. Um, 
when he said, truly you are Peter, and upon this rock I'll build the church. So this is talking about the church's authority to forgive sins and withhold forgiveness. But again, so anyways, verse 18, again, I say to you, if you, two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them from my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I among them. The main issue at hand here is the issue of actually um, church discipline. If you withhold, the church agrees to withhold um, forgiveness for somebody's sin, then... Um, we then it is withheld, and there he is with them. Where two or more agree on that withholding, God is Christ is with them. Um, and the same thing for forgiveness. When the church declares that your sins are forgiven, that you were the sins are loosed, then the, then again Jesus is there with them. So this is this actually has to deal more with forgiveness. Is is God there where two or more are gathered? Yes. But he's also there when one is gathered. And this is where the, I'm telling you that Jesus' high priestly prayer in the Gospel of John is so helpful. Or even any of the prayers that you have um, when he's in the Garden of Gethsemane. Remember, Jesus is by himself. And he is praying, Lord, if it be your will, and I'm going to come back to that, let this cup pass from me. All right? That's what he prays. Now, could you honestly tell me that you have more faith than Jesus? I don't think any of us can say that. Actually, I know none of us can say this because Jesus is the one and only person to ever be without sin. And yet, when he prayed that the cup, notice he would, that he would not be crucified, the answer was no. And was he not heard because he was by himself or he didn't have enough faith? Or maybe he didn't use the right words? No. Because God, it comes down to the will of God. It has nothing, the power isn't in prayer. The power is in the one to whom you pray. Yes, you can change his mind. Yes, you believe it or not, you can change God's mind. Um, this gets kind of communicated with Abraham. Uh, he he intercedes uh, for Sodom and Gomorrah, and he says, "Lord, if there are you know fifty righteous people, will you not spare the city?" And he keeps going, counting down down to ten. It appears that God is changing his mind. So God can change his mind. He won't, but he won't. He won't change his nature, but he can change his mind. But ultimately, the power lies in God, not the prayer. So we address him as our, our father. And this is really hard. I know some people don't have good fathers. I, I was blessed to have a very a wonderful father. And, and I know many of you have been. But I know some of you are not blessed with that. So I understand that it could be difficult to understand this. To grasp this idea that you could go to God as your heavenly father. But I think even if you haven't had a good father, I think you have some concept of what a good father would be like. Even if you've seen it in movies or TV shows and stories, I think you have a concept of it. You have a concept of it because even though you didn't have it, you, have a, you knew it was wrong. You knew something was off because you had an idea of what was the, the measure. 
And heaven, your heavenly father is the one who's the ultimate measure of fatherhood. And you can't, this is the opening of the Lord's Prayer, our Father who art in heaven, is telling you, you can address God in prayer like a child, a beloved child. And know that he is your father who loves you. All right? So that's the opening. The first petition, hallowed be thy name. What does this mean? God's name is certainly holy in itself, but we pray in this petition that it may be kept holy among us also. So one of the interesting things that happens in um, the start of in the Lord's Prayer is there's something of a reflection of the, the Ten Commandments. So I talked about, so the Ten Commandments is law, all about what God demands of you, and ultimately it's showing how you fail. The creed is very heavily gospel, very gospel heavy. All the wonderful things that God does for us, for providing for us physically, uh, providing for us with our salvation uh, through Christ, and providing, giving us faith through the work of the Holy Spirit. And one of the things that also, but the third, afterwards, the Lord's Prayer is very much dealing with sanctification. Because notice the third article says, in the same way he, the Holy Spirit, calls, gathers, enlightens, and sanctifies the whole Christian church on earth. So in other words, the, the Lord, the Holy Spirit sanctifies, and that means he is molding you, informing you to live as Christ would have you, or God would have you live. And so the Lord's Prayer is, is kind of sanctification. It is a prayer it is really ultimately a prayer that we would be live in line with God's will. So the first, the introduction to the Lord's prayer is lines up with the first commandment. The first commandment: "You shall have no other God before me." Therefore, we pray, "Our Father who art in heaven." We are acknowledging Him as the one and only God. How the second commandment: "You shall not misuse the Lord's name in vain." You should not misuse the name of the Lord your God. Hallowed be thy name. That is us recognizing that his name is holy. It is set apart. It is above all other names. So hallowed be thy name. What does this mean? God's name is certainly holy in itself. Holy means set apart. But we pray in this petition that it may be kept holy among us also. How is God's name kept holy? God's name is kept holy when the word of God is taught in its purity, its truth and purity. And we as the children of God also lead holy lives according to it. Help us to do this, dear Father in heaven. But anyone who teaches or lives contrary to God's word profanes the name of God among us. Protect us from this heavenly Father. So it is a prayer that God would Guide us to keep his name holy. This is done by, yes, hearing his word, receiving his sacrament, praying to him. But it's also in how we live because if we are Christians and we act like rebels, we act like degenerates, people will decry or defame the name of God on account of our actions. So this is why he says, so he's saying that it's, when we live lives contrary to God's word, we profane his name. So it is a prayer 
that we would honor his name, keep his name holy in our words, in our deeds, in what we teach, what we hear, what we believe, what we confess. Second petition, thy kingdom come. What does this mean? The kingdom of God certainly comes by itself without our prayer, but we pray in this petition that it may come to us also. How does God's kingdom come? God's kingdom comes when our Heavenly Father gives us his Holy Spirit, so that by his grace we believe his holy word and lead godly lives here in time and there in eternity. This is reflected for the third commandment. The third commandment is, remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. So how, where is it that God's kingdom comes to you? Because that's what we're praying. We're praying that thy, his kingdom would come to us. Well, his kingdom comes in the proclamation of the word. His, word, his kingdom comes in the waters of baptism. His kingdom comes in the reception of the Lord's Supper. Things that, yes, we're going to talk about in upcoming videos. But it comes in word and sacrament. That's why we attend the divine service. That's why we attend worship. So thy kingdom come. Thy kingdom comes to us. Our God's kingdom, the kingdom of our Heavenly Father, comes to us in word and in sacrament. Third petition. And when we remember the Sabbath day by keeping holy. Third petition. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. What does this mean? The good and gracious will of God is done even without our prayer. But we pray in this petition that it may be done among us also. How is God's will done? God's will is done when he breaks and hinders every evil plan and purpose of the devil, the world and our sinful nature, which do not want us to hallow God's name or let his kingdom come. And when he strengthens and keeps us firm in his word and faith until we die, this is his good and gracious will. So the third petition is reflective of, this would be reflective of um, the fourth commandment. So how does God carry out his will? He carries it out through his servants. So one of the ways I should say he carries out his wills is through the servants of God, of his leaders, First and foremost, your parents, um, or parents or guardians, then you know, teachers, bosses, employers, government, things like that. Those are ways that he carries out his will. But also, this prayer and this petition is also another thing that comes in our prayer. So when Jesus prayed in the Garden of Gethsemane, he said, Yet not my will, but your will be done. This is by far the hardest prayer that any person ever preached prays. Um, as a pastor, one of the things I am called to do quite often is to go and visit and tend to people um, when they're in the hospital, when they're sick. And one of the things that I, I admit I'm not good at praying is to pray, Lord, pray, Lord, if it be your will, make this better person, allow this person to heal, allow them to go home. I'm, I don't I admit that I do not personally have enough faith to say let your will be done in accordance to this person and you're sitting there saying well why does that take faith and for people say well to say if, if it be in accordance with your will that's a lack of faith no it it's actually incredible faith because I don't think people when people say that don't grasp what you're saying when you say 
thy will be done. When you say, let your will be done, not my will be done, especially when you're talking about somebody who's in the hospital, what you're saying is this person is sick. And you are praying to God, hoping that this person would be healed. And you know, and you believe, trust, and know that your Heavenly Father can make it happen for this person to come home and be better and be strong and mighty again, right? We know that he could do this. I mean, we read in the scriptures, he could, he raised the dead, he made the blind to see the leper, to, he cleansed the leper, you know, he did all these incredible things. He could make this person better. But when you pray thy will be done, or in accordance with your will, you're saying to God that not only can, that he can heal, but he might not do it. And you're recognizing it, that he may choose, no, I'm not going to heal this person. And he may choose that this person will pass from this earth. Now, when we're talking about an elderly person, that might be easier. But when we're talking about maybe a child who's battling a nasty bout of cancer or whatever it may be, it's a lot harder. Because here's the thing is that when you say that thy will be done, God choosing to not heal that person. When you say thy will be done, you are trusting and believing that that is what is best for that person. That is why it's such a tough prayer. You are, you are trusting in God's will even in the darkest, dreariest of moments. And just as Jesus did, not my will, but your will be done. No, in his case, meant to have nails driven into his hands, into his feet, a crown of thorn upon his head. And, Jesus, and God the Father said no. And Jesus was nailed to the cross. Why? Because that was what was needed. That was what was best. Maybe not even, and maybe sometimes in the case of Jesus, it really wasn't about what was best for him. It was about what was best for you. It's under so the pray thy will be done is to know that God can heal, that he won't do it, that he might not do it, and him not doing it will be the best for all, because he works for the good of those whom he has chosen even if that good requires death. So it's a very tough prayer. But we are called, it is, and I would tell you, more often than not, I don't have the strength to pray that prayer. I admit to it. Give us, fourth petition, give us this day our daily bread. What does this mean? God certainly gives daily bread to everyone without our prayers, even to all evil people. But we pray in this petition that God would lead us to realize this and to receive our daily bread with thanksgiving. What is meant by daily bread? Daily bread includes everything that has to do with the support and needs of the body, such as food, drink, clothing, shoes, house, home, land, animals, money, goods, a devout husband or wife, devout children, devout workers, devout and faithful rulers, good government, good weather, peace, health, self-control, good reputation, good friends, faithful neighbors, and the like. 
So notice it tells us there is a command there. So give us this daily, this day our daily bread. That is a prayer for all of our material, physical, worldly blessings. And to give thanks to God for it. I think it's kind of interesting. It says even give thanks for good government. How often do we give thanks for our government? How often do we pray for our government? Scripture tells us to do so. Um, so it's interesting that we don't very often do that. We don't pray and give thanks for our leaders, especially our political leaders. Um, and that means that's not just when he's your, he's not just not, that's not just when he, the president happens to be your political party or preference. It means even that president that you don't much care for. You're supposed to pray and give thanks for him. So, um, and so this is that's daily bread. It's also you're praying when you pray for your daily bread, you're praying not for abundance, you're not praying for riches, you're not praying for glory, you're praying to get to have exactly the bare minimum of what you need. And as I said before, you talk about your heavenly father, and sometimes he and he way, way more often gives you more than you need. And as Americans, yeah, we've got way more than we need. I, I'm reporting on a on a laptop. I mean, the value of this laptop is worth more than many people in this world make in an entire year. That if that doesn't tell you, that should speak volumes to us. To as far as the um, wealth and the abundance that we as Americans have. And by the way, when we have an abundance, our vocation, our calling is to give to those who don't. That's why God allows us to have more. It's not so we can have more. It's so actually so we can give to, to those who don't have more. All right. So, and by the way, the fourth petition is reflective of basically commandments 5 through 10. Um, fifth commandment, you shall not murder, you shall not... Um, you shall not murder, shall not uh, steal, shall not commit adultery, shall not bear false witness, shall not covet. That's all tied in with this fifth, fourth petition. Uh, the fourth petition is praying that we would, it's basically a prayer to keep all those commandments. The fifth petition. Now this is pretty much, is so the fifth petition is, and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. What does this mean? We pray in this petition that our Father in heaven would not look at our sins or deny our prayer because of them. We are neither worthy of these things for which we pray, nor have we deserved them. But we ask that he would give them all to us by grace. For we daily sin much and surely deserve nothing but punishment. So we too will sincerely forgive and gladly do good to those who sin against us. So a prayer for forgiveness, because as I pray, so we pray through that prayer, the Ten Commandments. That's basically a reflection of the Ten Commandments where it shows that we repeatedly fail. He is not always our Heavenly Father in our mind. We choose other idols, false idols. We do not always make his name holy in our life, in our words, in our deeds. We neglect the hearing of his word. We neglect the reception of his supper. We are we we are flippant about our attitude towards our baptism, towards towards the Lord's supper. Um, you know, we don't always honor our father and mother or those who are in authority over us. 
et cetera, et cetera. And so naturally, we are sinners. We don't deserve God. We don't deserve anything that God gives us. And it's very fitting that forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us immediately follows our daily bread. Because as we pray for those first first article of the creed, blessings and gifts, we recognize, we go back to that out. We don't receive any of this out of any merit or worthiness in us because there is no merit. There is no worthiness in us. And that's the thing we have to get to understand. So this whole idea that, you know, you have to pray the right prayer. You got to have, you have to have more and more people praying. And if you don't have more and more people praying, he can't hear you as well. You know, like as if, you know, Jesus, as if our God has a, a really bad hearing aid and he really if we can't have, if we don't have more people praying and shouting at him. He doesn't know, you know. We come up with all these little methodologies about how he's going to answer our prayer and give us what we want, but we forget he doesn't do it out of any merit or worthiness in you. He does it out of divine fatherly goodness and mercy. It has to do with him, not you. And so often, when it comes to prayer, we get this flipped. We make it about us. And we make it about something we did. And when things don't go the way we want, we think we did something wrong. But in reality, it's all on God. And faith, thy will be done, demands that we trust in him. We fully trust in the one who would, was not willing, would not even withhold, who was willing to give up his own son for you, who did give up his own son for you. That's who we trust in. So we pray that he forgive us, and we pray and we forgive others. We pray that he give us the strength to forgive others because, and by the way, everyone, there is no sin that anyone commits against you that is so grievous that you can't forgive them. You are called to forgive all sins. All right? Six petitions. We pray for even even forgive the sins that you don't realize they sinned against you. Although very often, <laughs> it's not very often that happens. We pretty much always seem to be aware. Six petition, lead us. <coughs> excuse me. Lead us not into temptation. What does this mean? God tempts no one. We pray in this petition that God would guard and keep us that so that the devil, the world, and our sinful nature may not deceive us or mislead us into false belief, despair, and other great shame and vice. Although we are attacked by these things, we pray that we may finally overcome them and win the victory. So, as he straight up says, we're praying that God would protect us from temptation. You give us ways out of sin. Um, there is a verse in 1 Corinthians where it talks about an often misquoted um, verse that we will not be tempted. Uh, we'll never face temptation beyond our ability you know, to resist or whatever. I'm really heavily paraphrasing. Quite often people say, well, you'll hear God will give us never give us more than we can handle. You may have heard that. No, the Bible it does not say that. The Bible never tells that. The very fact we're talking about prayer is evidence that no, God does give you more than you can. You do receive more than you handle. You can handle. That's why God wants you to pray to Him because you can't handle it. And the very fact that one day we all will die is evidence that there is you are going to receive things in your life that you can't handle. Uh, but not only does God not give you, 
not only, but anyways, that is based. It's a very bad misunderstanding of a verse where it said where Paul says that that you will not receive a temptation for which there is no way out. And so this is our prayer that we would, when those petition those temptations come, that God would lead us and protect us and guide us a way out so we wouldn't fall into sin. So, yeah, we pray God's protection in moments of temptation. And very fitting because he's the one that resisted temptation. But deliver us from evil is the seventh petition. What does this mean? We pray in this petition, in summary, that our Father in heaven would rescue us from every evil of body and soul, possessions and reputation. And finally, when our last hour comes, give us a blessed end and graciously take us from this valley of sorrow to himself in heaven. So in that petition, we are praying that you deliver us from the evil, the calamities of the world, from floods, tornadoes, fires, earthquakes, hurricanes, whatever it may be, um, from disease, cancer, heart disease, um, sexually transmitted diseases, uh, whatever it may be, we are praying they protect us from us, that you deliver us from these evils, that you bring healing. We pray uh, that you protect us from false teaching. We are praying that he would not, that we would not be led away from the faith, that the devil, we would better spiritually, we would not be attacked. Um, so that ultimately, when we breathe our last breath in this life, we are we still are calling upon him as our heavenly Father and trusting in his will, so that we may, as he said, as Luther says, graciously take us from this valley of sorrow to himself in heaven and to the resurrection of the body. And finally, there is this, we're at the conclusion. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. Now, first off, it should if you were to look at this, there's a little star right next to it. And the reason is, is because these words were not in Luther's small catechism. For thine is the kingdom and the... If, in fact, if you go to a Catholic church, some of you may be experienced this if you're not Catholic. You go to the Catholic church and you're praying the Lord's Prayer. And you get to where you would normally say, for thine is the kingdom. And they just say... So they'll say, but deliver us from evil. Amen. The only saying, but deliver us from evil, for thine is, oh, no one else is saying it. Eeks. Well, what's the deal here? Well, the phrase for thine is the king, for thine is the kingdom, did not really show up until really in the last couple hundred years. And it's a very new in, in, um, in introduction to the Lord's Prayer, but it's not entirely new. It's new, but it's also actually very ancient. In the early church, there was a practice to end all of all the prayers with the Trinitarian doxology. This is reflected in all of our collects. So, like in the prayer on the prayer of the day, so the collect of the day, you'd hear the pastors or the pastor say, um, "We pray these things through Jesus Christ, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever." Amen. This is that's a Trinitarian doxology, and it used to be that every prayer ended that. The earliest um, versions, um, worship editions or versions of the Lord's Prayer ended with the words, "Blessed is the kingdom of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit." Amen. This was to distinguish it as a Trinitarian prayer, to distinguish which uh, distinguish it as being a Christian prayer. 
Well, somewhere through the course of history, the Trinitarian doxologies dropped away, and they were gone for quite a while. For I mean, we're talking a thousand over a thousand, well over a thousand years, they had been disappeared. Other than in the Eastern Church, the Eastern Church still does blessed is the kingdom of the Father, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So somewhere, I think it's in either 1700s or 1800s, a doxology was reintroduced to the Lord's Prayer, and it was this one that we say, for thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. So it is, it is simply a doxology. It's a words of praise. It's a way of praising and elevating our God, um, the one to whom we pray. So anyway, so what does this mean? This means that I should be certain that these petitions are pleasing to our Father in heaven and are heard by him. For he himself has commanded us to pray in this way and has promised to hear his, hear us. Amen, amen means yes, yes, it shall be so. And by the way, the he's paraphrasing. The word amen literally in the Greek means truly or true. Amen in Greek or Hebrew means true. But there you hear Luther giving kind of a paraphrased definition of this. And yes, yes, it will be so. So we end each we end all of our prayers with that word, Amen. True. Truly. This is acknowledging that God hears us. It's a it's a stamp of agreement and belief that He's hearing us, and we believe what we said, and trusting that it is a way of saying that we trust that He will hear us and He will answer us as a heavenly father would on answer us. And he will answer in accordance with our will and what is best for us. So that is the, um, the focus of that. So that's the Lord's Prayer. That is what prayer is. That's a lot about what prayer is. Um, there's going to be more. We're going to talk a little bit more when we get into the table of duties in one of the last videos. Uh, but I think this is a pretty good primer on what prayer is and a good walkthrough for the Lord's Prayer. So the next video will be on holy baptism. So we'll see you then.